We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Exhaustive interview process that included year-and-a-half caretaker role for Unai Emery. Arsenal appear finally ready to appoint Mikel Arteta. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. That's right. It looks like we're getting a new coach, manager, coach. You decide, and it looks like it may indeed be Mikel Arteta. That's right. They put their heads together. They reviewed it. Multiple executives. Gazidis looked at him. Raul looked at him. The whole club looked at him. Hired Unai Emery, continued to think about Arteta, fired Unai Emery, installed Freddie as the caretaker, and now, finally, the process seems to have settled on Mikel Arteta. Cool. Well, look, here's the deal. I um, I am now remembering how hard the infant stage, the newborn stage of being a new daddy is. Uh, my second daughter, born on December 12th, is wonderful, but a handful. And as a result, I am not on the pod today. That's the good news. The bad news is... You can literally hear me. I'm on the pod today. So I guess technically I am on the pod today just to sort of introduce everybody that's coming up. And it's everybody. It's Tim. It's Paul. It's Clive. It's not Scott. But Scott is going to have an uh, analytics-focused pod for patrons starting this week. Uh, Clive is going to have his transfer window pod for patrons starting uh, very soon. And uh, we are going to have a Mikel Arteta deep dive for patrons. So a lot of cool Patreon content coming up, but have no fear. We've got a real long full pod that looks at all the big breaking news um, today with those three wonderful and insightful gentlemen. You don't have to hear my hysterics, except you do because I'm going to give them to you real quick. Uh, My take on Arteta, point blank, I'm excited about it. I can't really articulate why. Uh, Basically, it's hoping to get pep by association, I guess. Um, So I'm excited about that. 
I think as far as the game went, the, the city game, we were never going to be uh, a match for them. And I said in my little hey, uh, sort of previewy thing that I did for the previous pod, my intro like this, I said that there could be a hiding around the corner for us because the way we've defended, uh, we've gotten a little lucky against weaker teams and City are the kind of team that on their day can blow you away. Ironically, uh, they didn't create a ton, but they finished the chances they did create. And then I think they sort of sat on it, to be fair, in the second half, uh, which all things being equal, probably for the best. When you look at the team, the weird thing is I tweeted that I felt we played better football um, than we have been under Unai Emery. I, I saw football that I recognized in the buildup and in possession, and there was an intent to play football that made sense to me going forward. But the real issue with this team is pretty clear. The way we play off the ball is not good enough. The pressing isn't coordinated enough. And the sort of combination of, of disorganized pressing and lackluster chasing from midfield meant that when the ball bypassed the midfield, our very, very poor defenders were left exposed. And, and they're not good enough. None of them collectively, individually, are good enough to do the job. Uh, in midweek against Liège, you saw some comical individual defending and giveaways and just sloppiness. And then against City, again, you saw that once the midfield is bypassed, there's no hope. There really isn't. So the midfielders need to get better, but I think the whole system just needs to be a little more front-footed in the way it defends, a little more coordinated. And, uh, you know, given that Arteta has sort of learned at the foot of Pep, maybe that is just what we'll see going forward. And maybe there'll be some new personnel required to play that way. And maybe it won't be Arteta because maybe uh, City will want more money than Stan's willing to dish out. You can't rule that out. I'm not going to get into the Ozil thing here. I imagine they'll probably talk about it on the pod, except to say that this is a player who's in decline. It's clear we never should have given him the contract we did. He is a player who maybe can still help us, but with every game he plays, his limitations become more clear and his benefits become less clear. There was a moment in the game where he got the ball between the lines, center of the pitch, three runners ahead of him, the kind of uh, position where old or young <laughs> uh, Ozil would have thrived, turned and burst into space and delivered the perfect ball. And he was slow to get it out of his feet to, to turn to burst away. And he was dragged down from behind. And it was a, a tactical foul, the kind of which I thought City got away with too often. But the kind of thing that young Mesut would not have allowed to happen. So you're seeing it happen before his eyes, uh, before our eyes. And obviously threw a bit of a strop when he was subbed. Not what you like to see. Um, but who knows what's behind that? Maybe just frustrated with himself. Uh, a player whose body language has long been wondered about and interpreted and, and probably not correctly. I'm not going to get into the the Uyghur thing, really. I think um, my limited knowledge of the geopolitical situation is that there are apparently concentration camps in China where Uyghurs are being held, and that's horrible. And all of us should feel comfortable saying it's horrible. And whatever your take on Mesut Ozil's previous political associations and statements, you know, a person who is right about something should be celebrated for being right about it rather than uh, what about it to death on things that they may have been wrong about. So uh, assuming that what I understand about the Uyghurs is correct, then I think... He should be applauded. I think there's frustration with Arsenal and the way they've handled it, distancing themselves from him. If you want to look up Houston Rockets of the NBA and what they just went through uh, in a situation with the Chinese over Hong Kong in that case, uh, it is a really difficult situation for businesses that want to do business in China, given the way the state media controls the messaging there and the propaganda that's allowed to get out and um, how willing they are to cut off their relations with businesses that don't toe the line. So I think that's going to get more complicated, not less complicated, for uh, firms and, and clubs and teams that want to do business with China. But you certainly can't fault Ozil in this situation, I wouldn't think, for the message he put out. I'm sure you did not tune into this to hear politics from me. You didn't even tune into this to hear from me. You probably tuned into this to hear from Clive and Tim and Paul. And so I'm going to give way to them. Uh, it is an exciting time, though. There's a lot going on, a lot of football to be played, and hopefully uh, a lot of it with a new coach at the helm. 
I'd be perfectly fine with it being Arteta, and, and I think I'd love to see that just happen so we can move on. Last point, Olympiacos. Very difficult draw, I think, in the Europa League. A team we've struggled with in the Champions League away, uh, handled pretty well at home from what I remember. But given that we played, I think, Bate Borisov at this stage last season, which was you know a nothing game, and then I think we played Santa's, Santa's Workshop, right, uh, the year before under Arsene Wenger at this stage. So this is definitely a little more tricky in our current form, you wouldn't expect us to get through, but there's a lot that can happen between now and then, uh, and certainly will, I would think, between the transfer window and, and getting a new coach in. So let's put the past behind us. Let's look forward to hopefully a brighter future. Uh, we'll have more coming up. Remember, if you want to win a shirt, a year of The Athletic, or a year of Patreon, you just go to arsenalvisionpodcast.com forward slash win. We're going to be giving stuff away, our sort of Christmas present to those lucky winners. Uh, in addition... Uh, we do want to make Clive sing a Christmas carol. I guess you can make any of us sing a Christmas song, but it's theathletic.com forward slash Clive P-A-F-C, Stilberto, Paul AFC, because they wouldn't do positive in my pants, or Yankee Gunner, and uh, whoever has the most signups under their name is going to be recording a song just for you. The last point I want to make, um, with the birth of my daughter, I have received so many kind comments from people who listen to the podcast. And, you know, sometimes on social media, you hate me. You're mad at me. You're mean to me. You don't like something I said on the pod. You think I suck. And that's... Totally fair, because criticism, when you put your stuff out in public, is, is warranted and, and to be expected. And yet, uh, even people who have often not liked hearing me on the pod uh, took a moment to stop by on social media or other places and, and say congratulations and and uh, just some really nice messages. And I want to say I love you for that. And, and we do have such a wonderful group of listeners who increasingly and always have uh, been the best part of doing this podcast. So thank you. Thank you so much um, from the bottom of my heart. So I'm going to try to get no more sleep, go back to dealing with the baby, turn it over to Tim, Paul, and Clive. Uh, Stay with us. They're coming up right after the break. Okay, so we're not going to relitigate this game blow by blow because that's probably going to be a bit painful. And to be quite honest, all three goals were really quite similar. Um, and I think most of that will come out in the conversation. But I do think there was uh, there was actually quite a lot of hashtag narrative from this game as well as some kind of tactical stuff to pick over. And Paul, I'm going to start with you. Um, I think we all kind of knew what the lineup was going to be based on what the lineup was in Liège. Um, for example, I, I think I think we kind of knew that he was going to go with Ozil, he was going to go with uh, Martinelli, Pepe, and Abamyang. Bef- when you saw that lineup, though, confirmed, were you a bit scared that it was a little bit naive to play against Manchester City with that front four? And I'm thinking particularly of playing Ozil in the number ten role against Man City, which has never really worked. Yeah, uh, I've definitely scared. Not surprised, um, and I don't necessarily think it was the wrong call. I, I think, I think his options are very uh, limited. Mm. Poor old Freddie. I think he's kind of been dropped in it. I mean, when you hear that he can't do, you know, he hasn't had the chance to do tactical sessions with the team because of the 
the schedule. They're basically looking at video clips and he's making suggestions and then they, um, you know, they do a bit of recovery training or whatever, but he's not, he's not doing tactical setups. He, he's got a very, he's got a couple of different hands he can play. He can play three at the back or he can play four at the back. Um, having rested Ozil completely, it seemed very clear what was going on. I mean, he doesn't have a lot of midfielders either. I mean, he mm-hmm. played... He played Willock to extinction on Thursday. So he had, what were his choices in midfield if he wasn't going to go with, you know, Chaka's out with concussion. He needed, he needed Ozil just as a midfielder. Um, And on the other hand, that said, I didn't totally hate our start or our first half. And I think we should play football. So there's a part of me that says, fuck it. Um, I think there's a time for for supporters. I know nobody will ever listen to me, uh, and I'll be a lone voice on this, but there's a time when supporters should just say, you know what, let's just play some football, and we'll probably get beat, and we shouldn't overreact about it. Um, so. Do you think, um, uh, you know, like, so personally, I think this lineup pretty much for... I don't know, for like, I don't know, 14 other teams in the Premier League would be fine. Um mm. And, you know, I, I guess it's whether you go, well, look, let's just lean into that and kind of let's just try and get something moving and take something forward. Or or do you think there's a case for, well, it's Manchester City, you know, may, maybe we should do something different. I, I, you know, I get what you're saying. Like, um, we don't have Ceballos, we don't have Xhaka. Um, it's, it's kind of pretty limited. But, you know, Kevin De Bruyne spoke after the game and he kind of said, we knew that their front three like most of them don't track back um for example so they kind of you know did we walk into a bit of a trap do you think um we did um i think the the alternative was to sit back a bit and let them come at us and at the end of the day we said fuck it let's go for it i think we were extraordinarily unlucky um not in the result not in the scoreline but in how quickly those goals came. I mean, Kevin De Bruyne is a brilliant player, but he doesn't do that every week. Um, everything, the first three things they did came off and they scored three goals. And if I, you know, poor old Freddie, I, I think that's, he was extremely unlucky. Like I say, I don't think City were fortunate with the result, but we started well, started brightly. It could have been, we were always going to get stuffed. It's just like death by bongo bongo or death by. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think we should have leaned into it. We should have played some football. It, it, it would be nice if Freddie and the team and the supporters could all sit down before a game and say, hey, look, this is what we're doing. This is why we're going to do it. Let's not all freak out when it goes tits up because <clears throat> it's only a question of how you like your tits going up, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that's fair enough. And, and Clive, I was going to ask you about the midfield, Clive, and I, I, I will ask you about the midfield in a minute because. But, um, but there was a worse. Well, well, <laughs> yes, I, I think that's that's the general consensus. But actually, um, you know, the, uh, Paul just used the phrase "poor old Freddie" there a few times, and I think a lot of people have used that phrase. And I guess the thing I'm interested in, and um, look, we can caveat the absolute shite out of this answer by saying, you know, he's a rookie coach, he's been dumped into a really bad situation, um, he's got no staff, and we'll we'll come on to that later, I've got another question about that, but 
when I watched this game, I was looking at it and I was thinking, I don't know what our plan was. Like I can't, I can't pick out what we're trying to do here. Um, and I guess first of all, it's it's whether you agree with that, and second. The thing I'm really interested in, how how much responsibility for just this one game does Freddie Lundberg take? Is it completely not his fault? Or was he a little bit naive with the way he lined up? Do they just look completely disorganised? Like, I'm not going to ask you to put a percentage on it, but how much responsibility does Freddie Lundberg himself, you know, with all the caveats about him being inexperienced in the bad situation, take for not just the result but the manner of it? I think he's trapped. I think he's trapped in how do I restore this club, this team? I need to give him a bit of a, a bit of injection, a bit of life, a bit of few smiles around. I think that's what he wants to do. You can tell he's a he's a nice guy. I bet he's one of those coaches, a bit like Arteta's perceived. You know, one of those individual coaches that spends time one on one, soft speaker, you know, high emotional intelligence. I can see what this player's doing. I can help him. You know, that type of person. Mm. Suddenly you're put in charge of Arsenal Football Club. Arsenal Football Club going through some of the worst results in 30 years. And you want to please everybody. So let's get let's get back to playing. Let's get back to, you know, controlling the game. Let's, let's get back to playing nice, relaxed football. Try to boost some confidence. You try that, then you realise, oh my God, this team needs coaching. Proper coaching, mm. proper structure, and it almost—you can almost see it. Yes, there was a period in the game when Callum Chambers lost the ball, unfortunately, and he, he just saw him put his, you know, his hands to his head, and you thought there's like a massive realization here how massive this job is. Right, just it just dawned on him, and no amount of soft speaking, one-on-ones, the respect that he obviously has from the club, the fans, the players. Arms That's around not, the shoulder. It's not quite enough, is it? It's not quite enough at the moment because we have a set of uh, people, professional people, professional players, that basically will take advantage of any situation which doesn't suit them. Right. So not all of them, but that's some of them. That's just the nature of footballers. They internalise under stress, and um, so I feel if you know if I'm gonna, I'm not gonna criticise anybody at the moment because. If I do, it is not meant because it's a unique set of circumstances and it's just an obvious critique. But there was a blueprint about how to play Man City from the week before. Just just watch the Man United tape mm. and see what they did. They kept three or four quite quick players, one in the middle there for a transition, three high, and kept City's defenders back who weren't as quick as their forwards. They stopped them overloading. They pressed, they worked when they had to. But they stayed high and then they transitioned and broke. So they played like a high team and a low team. They didn't do what we did, which was back to... There's a big FA initiative at the moment about walking football. I think I also discovered jogging football. <laughs> right? So um, we, need to, we need to get some money in for that because we've developed a new game. Right? So this jogging forward in a half press, but I'm here, but I'm not really here. Oh, the ball's been played between me. Now I'm jogging backwards. I mean, it, it's literally like watching Andy Murray play tennis, right? Up and back, up and back. And we are a jogging football team. And and so we need to decide what we're going to do. And we didn't really sit off. We didn't really press high. We just got battered through the middle. 
and our poor defenders running back towards their goal. They must be able to recognise faces in North Bank by now. They're running back towards them so much. They must be able to recognise some of the fans' faces. They must be. They're just looking at them all the time, and uh, it's really, it's really quite depressing. Um, but it is where we are, and I've I've gone through the various stages of grief that we're all going through, and I'm now saying, okay, this is where we are. Things are being uncovered. Do I go hard on a certain themes? Do I get out all the things that I think I'm right about that I said for ages ago? Is that really important? It, you know, some of this is so obvious, lads. You know what I mean? It's so obvious what we're seeing. And the structure of the team is broken. The, the club is drifting. Leadership is not there. And this is a result when you don't do your jobs properly, top to bottom. And Paul, you want to come in on that? Yeah, uh, I I do think I left Freddie off a little light because the one thing that was very clear in this performance, he wouldn't have to do a lot of a tweak to say to the guys, listen, don't press. Don't press uh, City. There's no point in chasing the ball around the field. They're way beyond our ability to press them in a coherent manner and we're just going to wear ourselves out. I didn't really... Un- it's not like we did a consistent and brilliant uh, press uh, we were fully committed to it. We kind of pressed some of the time in the first half. And every time they ran around us and threw us. So that that to me was naivety. Uh, I, I think, you know, uh, Clive prompted me on that with the Man United thing. I don't, I don't think we should have changed to the point where we set up like Man United. Because I don't think he has the time to do uh, a, a significant retweak, re, uh, tweaking of the setup. But he... You know, a simple, a couple of simple adjustments would have kept us a little bit more compact when they had the ball, because there's just no point. Why stretch yourself out? Why create the gaps? And uh, I, yeah, go on, Clive. I was going to say to him, you know, because there was a moment I'm watching the game. I, I didn't go to the game. I'm watching it, and I could feel this sort of um, <laughs> gloom just come over me. Right. So I was going to say to him, was it like in the stadium? How was that first half received? Um. <laughs> quite bad like I think everyone was was quite bored to be honest not least because um you know the first goal comes so early um and it really kind of put... so I think the atmosphere was very much and it's very much how I felt as well I thought right we're kind of making up the numbers here I think I know how this is going to go I tweeted about this I had a, a whatsapp conversation with my mate last week and he said we're going to get done six or seven nil and I said I think we're lucky that this is a game in the Christmas period and City will get to 3-0 and they'll stop. And that turned out to be yeah. exactly how it, how it happened. But it, and, it reminded me of those pictures of the First World War where the Germans and the Brits meet over <laughs> uh, Christmas for a bit of a kick around. And it's like it's like we declared a truce shortly after halftime. There was an yeah. understanding. Nobody really upset. It, we'll, we'll have the odd counter, but nobody push all the way through. Yeah, yeah. And... And then actually, you know, Martinelli gets that chance in the first 30 seconds. And I'm not saying everyone believed at that point, but you think, OK, like City, they're not good defensively. I, I thought we could get at their defence better than we did because I've watched City's last few games. And this, and what's been happening, unfortunately, I, I think we're slightly unfortunate that they corrected this 
because I've been watching them, I've just been watching teams walk through their midfield and I've been saying, you know what they miss? They miss Fernandinho in midfield with the kind of kick your legs away on the halfway line and stop things from happening. And they've not been doing that that much this season. They really rediscovered a taste for it against us. Maybe as a symptom of what happened to them against Manchester United, maybe they just thought, look, we've, yeah. we've really got to start like, you know, pulling some shirts and kicking some legs away again. And they got, you know, think about how unthreatening Arsenal were and City got five yellow cards and four of them were for breaking up counters. So I think the only way in which Arsenal was slightly unfortunate was that Manchester City rediscovered their taste for tactical fouling and... I mean, I want to say the referee was too weak to deal with it, but I th- I think this is why the rules should be changed around tactical fouling because there's not really yeah. much a ref can do about it. I think he should have at least had a word with their captain after yeah, the third Freddie one. Yeah, called that out pretty good in yeah. the press conference. He spent quite a bit of time saying, I think he used the term cynical. Yeah. And Klopp, and Klopp calls it out as well, doesn't he? Because he yeah. knows that's a, that's a big tactic. And he knows that, well, not just him, but... Many other many managers now focus on transitions because that's when you catch teams, that's when teams are most disorganised, that's when you get your speedsters out, and they are just and we're not super quick. You're absolutely right, but we did have some transitions, but they were snuffed out big time. And I think the card has to come out every time, and eventually they're going to run out of people to do it. And yeah. You'll get and I don't care what minute it is, just do it. If yeah. you transition, you're breaking. Book them. And see yeah, what I, I think that. Um... Uh, maybe not. I think an absolutely deliberate foul, like Jacker's red card against Swansea, right, a couple of seasons ago, and he's the only player in the history of football to be sent off for that. I think that should be a red card when you take someone's ankle like that. And and actually, it's more dangerous than people think. We've seen um, Son did it um, to Andre Gomez yeah. against Everton the other week. Obviously, had no intention of causing that much damage. But when you you choose to kick someone's legs away, that that can happen. That's a risk you take. And Kalasanac went off, and I'll, I'll come on to that in a minute. I know there are some views on that. But, you know, Kalasanac had to come off because his ankle was stood on because of a cynical non-attempt to play the ball. So, I mean, personally, I think if a team, and, and a big team, and a good team, and Spurs did this against Wolves as well repeatedly, I think when teams have tactics that are geared around breaking or bending the rules, you change the rules, you close that loophole. Why did the back pass rule come in? Because Liverpool in the 80s were just going backwards and forwards to Grobelar, killing games off. Uh, Leeds used to do it under Howard Wilkinson as well, so they went, right, we've got to stop this, we've changed the rule. And they changed it, and it was great, and that's something I, I think football's great at. But, sorry to come back to your actual question about what it was like in the ground, that the second that De Bruyne goal went in that first one I think everyone just went oh god here we go and yeah. um, honestly the second half the amount of times I looked at the scoreboard um, and I was just like oh Christ there's another 20 minutes to go <laughs> like and and I think everyone had just had just had enough at that point and you know this this isn't City at their absolute best they've dropped off this season but I don't think anyone expected anything other than what they saw um and you know to to kind of um to come back to the question i suppose i wanted to come on to i've kind of vouched for a terrari terrari genduzi double pivot quite hard <laughs> over the last few months um listen i think everyone and everything is a little bit broken at the moment so i'm kind of loath to make 
really kind of final judgments and and severe judgments on players and partnerships. But um, Clive, I'll let you have a first <laughs> bite at this. Is that okay. one of the worst central midfield displays that you've seen from an Arsenal team ever? I, th- I think it's very. It's it's very. I'm not. Whatever I say now, let me caveat. <laughs> whatever I say now. It is all around the context of this being an awful time to watch the team, right? So we can only say what you see. And what I see are three players in there playing their own games. It's as simple as that. They're not working as a unit. So you've got Torreira, who naturally probably comes out the best because he's a workaholic, and boy, do we give him work to do. However, he goes fishing a lot. If he, if he chooses the wrong bait to go after... And he can be out of position. Well, when you turn around, well, let's not talk about Gwendouzi's positional play at the moment because it's non-existent. Um, he is somebody that has obviously been affected by what's going on, and he's not sure. Uh, he's not sure how to react. I think he fancied himself a bit too much, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's focused on the extremities of football and how he looks and how he's perceived. I think he wants to be a star. I think he acts like a star. I think he will be a star, but he's not a star. He needs to get back to basics and start doing the work like he used to do when he felt it was a privilege to play for Arsenal rather than, well, I've arrived and now you've got to like me. I'm on the Golden Boy charts. I'm the, one of the best 20-year-old players in the world. I'm in the France squad, which is a very hard squad to get into. I'm going somewhere. And that's how he's playing at the moment, without actually playing. And the other bloke in there, the one who's been there since 2013, that takes home 18 million quid a year. I, I don't care what you say. You can only look at that and say, what the hell is going on? Right, you. I don't care. We've had mel- multiple debates about this player, and I'm I'm sorry. He, um, whether it's right or wrong, he epitomises a lot of what's wrong at the club. How we hold on to the lovely square pass, the lovely moment, the lovely cross, and we think that's football. That's not all of what football is. It's it's made up of many, many, many different parts. And there are and the Man City team and a couple of players on their team show you exactly what football's about and what modern football's about. And I'm afraid um Mesut sort epitomizes a game that's no longer played. It's no longer played at the top table of European football. And uh, and if we are going to have a football match that's structured around him, then he needs 10 different players around him but he's had different players around him over this period of time and he needs a he needs superstars around him that are aggressive that are sprinty that are alphas that are like Ronaldo that are like Alexis that are like Benzema they're the players that get the best out of him that absolutely take responsibility and allow him to pick people's pockets quietly and silently at Arsenal we expect a bit more we are doing things with him financially. We put our money into him rather than Ramsey, rather than other players. And we expect him to do more than what he's doing. And I'm not going to go back into the old roll his sleeves up, blah, blah, blah. You just have to look at 
his body language and how he moves. <laughs> you know what? I hate saying that word body language, but it's it. I can't help. I can only say what I see. Yeah. And and I go back to similar to what what's happened with Shaka, for example. His reactions and his reactions to dispossessions. His technique is going off. His football talent is fading, but his reactions tell me a lot about the environment. You've heard me say this before, Tim. If he feels he can do that again, the way he walked off and what he did, that tells me there is no authority within the club, within the first team environment. It's too nice. It's too friendly. That can't happen. It happened with the captain, the previous captain. It sort of happened again. There are people's reactions which are public and wrong. And that tells you there's a struggle and that tells me that the atmosphere is not correct. But why would it be? We've lost a manager mid-season for the first time in a quarter of a century. I don't know how long it is. And we're in we're in a we're in a pretty dark place. So that's that's where we are. And what you were saying there about Urzel playing a game that's not played anymore, etc. etc. I mean, this isn't the Manchester City post-match podcast, unfortunately, but just look at what was on the other team. Um Kevin De Bruyne the finest playmaker probably in the world at the moment, um, sprinting all over the pitch, closing players down, sprinting on on counter-attacks at 3-0. Um, you know, I, I think you're right. I think Kevin De Bruyne was playing in 2019 and Mesut Ozil was playing in 2013, I think it's yep. fair to say. Um, Paul, I'm, I'm going to come back a bit later to Ozil. I'm, I might just ask about, um, you know, Clive's kind of touched on it there, about the substitution and the decision to take him off and to put a youngster on for him and, and what that says. But I, I want to kind of stay with the central midfield with you, um, if that's OK. And I want to ask you a really simple question, Paul. Is Lucas Torreira actually good? <laughs> because I feel like he was good... And maybe we overrated him a bit because he was so much in the mould of what we wanted to see and what we thought we needed and what we did need that maybe we kind of like blew our load with him a little bit early. Um, yeah. To to put it in a manner of speaking, and then like he's looked quite damaged for like nearly a year now, and I think we put a lot of that at Emery's door. Um, and I don't want to relitigate Emery's reign or anything like that, but it's. Is is it the case that we've got a player that's not as good as we thought he was, or a player who's just unsettled? Like, what's your read on Lucas Torreira eighteen months into his Arsenal career? Well, I think I'm going to be a very frustrating podcast member and <laughs> contributor to uh, Twitter debate on this particular game. I, I mean, we were a mess without the ball, um, but. You know, I didn't hate everything about Torreira. I, I thought there was, like, I always struggle with this where people say, look, they, they, uh, they're not trying, they didn't do anything, blah, blah, blah. And you go back to the game and you see there are times when the head goes and it'll be yeah. one player but not another player. There's plenty of times where I thought Torreira was doing the right things, working hard, making a contribution, and then there'd be a lapse. Um, and I think that's just, you know, when a team gets into a bit of a funk, you're going to see this. I think, you know, it's not a lack of, of desire, interest or whatever from Torreira. I thought he was very good against West Ham. Yeah. Um, not just when we were good. I thought he was good before we were good and before we had that nine-minute spell. I thought 
there was plenty in this game that made me think the guy can still do the things I liked about him. Um, we're in this weird phase where you can't really judge anybody. Um, and, and like this has been going on for a few years now. There was the tail end of the Wenger period. There was the the last two thirds of the Emery period where you just like every, every time you criticize a player, there's kind of an asterisk against them. Um, because how much has it? But but I definitely think Torreira has perked up since Emery's gone. I I prefer his performances. Uh, he looks alive. So you know I I tend to pick through these games and and maybe be kinder to individuals. Uh, I'll portion out that bit of their game that I think was a, you know Jesus. I might even defend Ozil in the first half while in possession. Now that's mm-hmm. a that's a small subset of his performance. And what he should be providing for us for the money. But when we were good in the first half going forward, and there were times, he had quite a bit to do with it. Some of his passing set us off. Now, you put, as you said, you put that against De Bruyne's first half, and it's like, holy shit, look at the things he isn't doing for us. Mm. Um, but then, you know, it's just the nature of this jigsaw puzzle of a game against City at this point in time. How harsh do you go on their performances? Um, you know, there were things about Gendouzi's game that, that again, showed promise. But when you look at it as a midfield setup and a midfield pair, pairing executing, uh, we were woeful uh, out of possession, uh, especially as the, you know, those three fairly quick goals knocked the stuffing out of us. And it's like, what, what do you really judge at the end of the day? I know that's kind of our job and that's why we're here. But I... Between West Ham and this, I certainly don't think uh, we have misjudged him. We just don't know what we have yet, and we won't till till we get things clarified. Whether it's Freddie going forward, it looks strongly like it's not going to be, and they, they haven't given him anything like the backing to even do an interim job. I think that's uh, that's turned all these performances into something it's hard to analyse. But I don't think he was just crap or average. I think he was a mixture of good and exasperating. Uh, I think, yeah. I've got to say, Paul and Tim, I think what we're seeing from our midfielders is one good thing, one bad thing. Yeah. And the reason why that is is because they're just the whole team isn't just not compact enough. So when we see a good thing, okay. But when we see a bad thing, it leads to a shot. Do you know what I mean? Because the spaces are just too big and yeah. we, we're just not compact enough. So then you go back to judging people. Okay, we know that Mesut Ozil's not a two-way player. We've done that, right? So we accept it up to a point. When we lose like that, then we don't accept it. I recognise I fall into that trap as well. Guendouzi, he, he's okay. When the spaces get big, he's looking, he's looking like he's got lead in his boots at the moment. Right? He's looking like he's got diving boots on. It's unbelievable how slow he looks, particularly on the recovery. And and Torreira again, I feel is a small space sprinter, sneaks up on people, steals the ball, steals their lunch money off he runs. Right? So but you can't do that. He needs a crowd scene to do that. And there was there was one move in the second half, it might be the second half, I'm not sure now, is it ball a blur? But I saw it on the breakdown, or I saw it somewhere today on video. It might have been on um, Monday Night Football. When De Bruyne goes to the right hand side and he's driving, and he crosses to Sterling, sort of midway into our half, and there is a space where there is just literally no Arsenal people. 
and I've got a 55-inch TV, right, and I'm waiting for somebody to come into the corner of it, and there is just nobody, right? There is just nobody. And you say to yourself, okay, we're, we're broken. This isn't the time to judge these people because they're not even in the picture. They're not even in, in the... They're not even in N5. Do you know what I mean? I don't know where they are. I, I and, remember uh, that exact incident, and I promise you, me, me and my mate John, I, the reason I remember it is because we started laughing. Yeah. <laughs> we just went, what? Look, we were just like, look at that. That is just, like, unreal. It's just nobody anywhere to be seen. And then we're meant to judge Chambers, which I could easily do. <laughs> just yeah. Judge everybody. And you just you just got to you just got to dial back, haven't you? You've got to dial back because that just is not Premier League football. I have just not seen that before. You know, in a in a game when running and space and people predict things and proactive movement, defensive transitions, you get judged on these things, and we were nowhere to be seen, which basically meant they had enough. They had enough. I am. Um... I, I want to go into two of the substitutions now, and I'm going to ask you both a question about each of them. Clive, you've spoken about Urzel already, and I know you have a view on the Galasinac substitution, so I'm going to come to you on that. First, I'm going to read what Freddie Lundberg said after the game, and I think he made a few interesting comments, which we'll draw on. But on the said Kalasinac substitution, which we spoke about, he kind of got his ankle stood on, and I think he was carrying an ankle injury anyway. But this is what Freddie said after the game, because obviously we're down to 10 men and City immediately score, and they start the move down the left-hand side. Um, and Jungberg said... Obviously, Sead went down, then our player started getting ready. The weather meant he had a lot of clothes on. We tried to get him on. That's something we need to learn with young players, for them to get ready quicker. But then when you are injured and you are down, you need to stay down until the players are ready so that we can make the change. Clive, your view on Sead Galassinac's <laughs> substitution, okay. and, and maybe the fact that Freddie Jungbo brought on Bukayo Saka um, for him. I was pleased to see Saka come on, and that didn't surprise me really. I, I thought, um, you know, that maybe he could have brought on Louise and pushed somebody else out there. I don't know, but um, I was pleased to see him come on. My issue with Klasnik, and I'm going to caveat this by saying my issue with Mustafi also is I feel that some players can feel a bad day coming and they want to get off the pitch, right? And I say this. I say this without knowing the detail. He might have a three-month right now, for all I know. But I've seen Mustafi. There was a game recently, Tim. I think it was a Thursday game when he was off. But by the Sunday, he was first picking the Premier League team. And he was as fit as a daisy. Do you know what I mean? And I've seen this before with him. And I think some players just know it's time for you. Let me get out of here. It's not going to go well. And I suspected the same again. And... I was talking, you know, he was on the same tweet with Lewis and he was sort of like saying, and you know what, he made me sort of dial back. But my gut, my gut tells me I've seen this type of behaviour before at Arsenal. People tend to have near-death experiences and suddenly they're back in the next game. And so my spider senses are off when I see that, right? So I'm not saying I'm right, but I've seen it and it's been proven and I've seen it particularly with Mustafi. And I, and I suspected it this time, but I'm not sure if I'm correct. It it kind of reminds me of that. Do you remember what um, Jurgen Klopp said about Daniel Sturridge? He said something about um, 
he needs to understand like what's pain and what's pain i think he described it as what real pain is and uh mm. and that was you know look we we might put this podcast out and then tomorrow we get like something on arsenal.com saying Kolasinac is out for 6 months cuz all of his ankle <laughs> exactly. ligaments had done and he did come back on and he tried to play on for a couple of minutes and and then went off but um yeah, I, I wanted to let you have a go at that because, I, yeah, I, referring to that Twitter conversation we had earlier, um, I, you know, I think you're right. We can't really prove anything on that, but I'm I'm kind of with you. I He was down below me, and uh, I know he's a big guy, right? So when someone stands on his ankle, if he goes over under his own weight on his ankle, it's a bit like Sol Campbell, you know, when Sol Campbell's ankle used to yeah, go, yeah, I remember. it used to, it used to almost fall clean off because there's about 20 stone of muscle falling on top of it. And it's kind of like that with Kolasinac, but I, I'm with you. I wouldn't be surprised if he's in contention for the next game. I, I, I think I agree. I've, I've seen it before as well, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, Paul, I want to talk to you about the Mesut Ozil substitution um, first of all, what you make of his reaction to it. And again, Freddie Lundberg, um, he touched on this. You know, he didn't pull any punches after the game. He said, we'll deal with this. Um, you know, it it wasn't quite a Xhaka situation, but it felt like he was, um, he was a raised arm away from the crowd <laughs> into making it another Xhaka situation. And he kicks his gloves away at the end. Uh, so I guess, first of all, your reaction to his reaction and also whether you think there was a message there that it was Emil Smith-Rowe who came on for him and in fact Freddie brought on three academy players as substitutes and you know he brought Saka on at left back when he could have put Louise in and shifted things about a bit do you think that that was a message and if so who do you think the message was to? Was it to his senior players or was it to, um, you know, Raul and Edu at all? Yeah. So the first thing I got to say is if Clive thinks bragging about a 55 inch TV to a partly American audience and an American participant or American based participant on the pod is going to impress anybody, our cats have 55 inch TVs over here. <laughs> That's sorry, Paul. I just wanted to make my point. <laughs> um, so I do think there was something, maybe it wasn't pointed, but there was a message from Freddie. I, I don't think he has a lot of options at the moment, but the one thing he feels he has options with is making a, a point to the older players by playing the younger players. Um, and Emery's played younger players this season. Uh, and, get, you know, he could probably go puff up his chest and say, hey, I gave them a chance. But you don't really feel he he really leaned into it. He backed them that they felt you know, the ones who succeeded dis succeeded, not because they really felt Emery believed in them. Uh, you definitely get the sense and maybe it's it's his brand that he has leaned into the young players and and it wholeheartedly and it's kind of showed on Thursday night and you know his options is three subs as you said were younger players and I think he's probably had his frustrations looking at the senior players for some time now there is it's a small sample size and there are some coincidental or circumstantial factors here I mean a left back goes off 
and our most likely left back comes on. Um, maybe the surprising thing with Ozil was he didn't make it a tactical decision and swap them out earlier and get uh, Smith Rowe on um, and give him a longer run in the second half and just say, hey, Messett, this isn't your kind of game. Um, but it does feel that he was maybe not going out of his way to making a point, but kind of making a point. Um, the the Ozil incident, you know, to be honest, I've Ozil is a player who gets frustrated, and you see that. I don't think that's the same as doesn't care. Um, I think he handled this badly. I think Freddie didn't particularly appreciate that. Um, Freddie's in this tenuous situation, and he stood up and made a point about it and made his comments about it. Um, but he, to me, the interesting thing is just Freddie's situation. I mean, he's, they put him in a situation where they haven't packed him. They haven't given him the staff. They've said, hey, if he do, they've let the message out there that if he does well enough, he could stick around till the summer and yet totally cut his legs under him uh, in that regard. And yet he's supposed to go into these games and handle our stars um, as if he has control over the situation. Uh, but, you know, what's he do? Do you drop an Ozil? He, he's dropped Lacazette, which is a big move. Can you drop Lacazette? Ozil and Luis and have any kind of a dressing room. He certainly kind of, and Ozil being the big name that kind of done in Emery, you might say, or contributed seriously to it when things went bad. So uh, I kind of feel we're reaching an interesting point, but we won't have the time to see how it plays out if we, if we make a change in terms of management. We're, Freddie is beginning to reach a point where he would have made the tougher decisions and started making changes to our lineup. Um, and this might have been kind of... He, he hints at it that he, he, he could see that decisions might be made management-wise. And maybe this was a little bit of a last hurrah, having had his ass kicked in the first half, a little bit of a revenge in the second half to say, you know what, guys, I can make some changes. I can pull you guys off. I'm a bit pissed off about things too in terms of what you guys have given me in the second half. I can do this, and I may, but I may not get the time to follow it through in the future. And I, I think you make a really interesting point there. Um, you know, obviously he's dropped Lacazette and Louise and not brought them on for this game and instead mm -hmm. gone with three academy kids. He'd already dropped Pepe before that and said basically he wasn't training properly. Um, it does seem like, and and he's spoken about, you know, the the more experienced players kind of um, stepping up a little bit. It 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 does feel like, um, not necessarily that he's trying to take certain players on, that that he is giving a message. And and I think what's interesting about this, just rowing it back to Özil specifically, you know, a lot of the Özil thing, it became Özil and Emery. And actually, we kind of know that before Emery turned up, perhaps Ozil wasn't the world's best trainer and, you know, was a little bit sickly when it came to away games up north. And But, but I think a lot of that got lost in the Ozil-Emery thing. If now Emery's gone, if Ozil continues to be a problem, he doesn't really have anywhere to hide. And I, I'm not really proposing we go into this in any depth, but... 
um, after after this week, we can't exactly transfer him to China <laughs> anymore. Um, <laughs> so, so I mean, so what I'm saying is, in terms of Özil's reputation, I I don't know about you. I think this is really interesting because at the moment, I think he could just about row things back and say, "Well, that was Emery. Yeah. And he just didn't get on." Whereas, if he's a problem for Freddie and whoever the next guy is, and we'll come on to that later. You know, he he really doesn't have anywhere to go in terms of his legacy. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I you, you struck another point with me, which is I I laugh at people who want wanted Arsenal to get into geopolitical discussions with China. We can't even organise our own midfield and defence, but we're <laughs> we're going to get into oh, a dear. big hoo ha with China. We could definitely make the Ch- the Uyghur situation in China worse. We could not make it better. We have to. We may just have to admit that um, Mesut Ozil is semi-retired, and Arsenal is his platform for what he wants to do outside of football. That's that's the situation that we're in, and he manipulates the situation. That we all fall for it. He gets onto the pitch. You're absolutely right. He. I never thought. I tell you now, there was a point. I, I hold my hands up. I never thought he would outlast Emery, and he did. Right. So that that's a surprise. He's got back into the team. He got Emery's trust back into the team. Did okay. Freddie really tried to lean on him. Just, just not, there's nothing there, mate. There, there is nothing there. There is. We're waiting for it to come. I, I can't see it. Can't deny the talent. I can't deny what the talent they used to be. Where we are now, we need something else. If he's got something in his back pocket, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm looking really hard to. I can't see it. Um, I think we have a semi-retired player in our hands. And we are paying off his pension, and, and good luck to him. And kind of, um, Clive, just sticking with you uh, on on this, I suppose, on this situation, but from a slightly different angle in, in your view, you know, as a coach, and particularly as a coach of young players, you know, Freddie threw in Emil Smith-Rowe, Bukayo Saka, Joe Willock, um, started Ainsley Maitland-Niles, you know, started Genduzi. not sure he had an awful lot of choice. I know Chambers is 24 now, but he started him over David Luiz, started yeah. Martinelli. Um, you know, he, he really, I think, made a statement in terms of um, some young players. But I'm particularly interested in the three he brought on. So if we're agreed that he's kind of making a statement to someone, whether it be the senior players, the senior execs or both... Do you think, like in your view, is there a potential downside for the actual players themselves in terms of throwing them into this situation? Because this is a situation where even even someone like a Bamiyang looks shot. So you're kind of yeah. asking young men to come in into this really poor situation. Or do you think it's kind of no lose? You know, look, let's give Smithrow half an hour against Man City. The game's unsalvageable. Give him half an hour to run around and perhaps get a close look at Kevin De Bruyne. Which side do you come down on on this? It's a tough one, right? Because maybe the maybe the only answer will be maybe in a year's time. And we look back at these minutes that they're getting this season and say this was the period where it developed and they made their mistakes and we lost loads of points. We finished ninth. But actually, look at this player now. Look at Willock now. Look at Smithrow now. And I do like Smithrow. You know, I do like Saka. I do like Willock. I'm not sure how far they're going to go. I do think their development may need to, some of them, be away from this club. They're still incredibly young, incredibly inexperienced. 
but there are also three very talented players that are on the England pathway. And, you know, we need to look after them. We need to get them into the right place, either to play proper minutes every single week. And I look at Smith Rowe, and he's had injury problems. But he is a promising player with real mm. drive and spring. You know, someone take him away to a, a, a fitness camp and really work on his physique. So he doesn't have to worry about that for a while. Then get him back playing football. Really nurture this player because he has some real explosions and real drive. He's got power shot. He can carry it. He, he sees things. He sees a drop of the ball. He's got something. He's very young. We've got to look after these boys. We can't can't happen to a situation where we are looking to them and relying on them and putting expectations on them for the failings of the club for the last three, four years. That's not fair. We must have an environment. I'll probably talk to when you go into managers. We must have an environment where they are allowed to fail. They're allowed to fail. We cannot kill these players. It would be criminal that Smith Rowe's been in the club since he's eight years of age. He gets to the promised land and he arrives at this period. He doesn't arrive with Thomas Fizicchi and, and Kleb around him and Fabregas. He arrives into this, mm. right? And that's just timing. Now, maybe he wouldn't get on the pitch in that period, but he's on the pitch now. And we, as fans, all we can do is make sure we encourage and look after these players because that's all we can do. We hope the club will do the same. Paul, let's um, let's wrap up on this game by touching on some more of Freddie Jungberg's comments afterwards, which, again, I think was, were very interesting. I think one of the things we're learning about Freddie is that um, I wouldn't I wouldn't go so far as to say he's outspoken. As I mean, I think he's very Swedish. <laughs> in that, uh, in my experience of of Swedish people, they they tell you um, what they think um, pretty much at all times, and it's not considered. Um, you know, it, that's not considered like a, a big or brave thing to do. That's that's just kind of how it is. And and I think we're seeing from Freddie that he he kind of there's not really like there's, you don't need a bullshit filter with with Freddie Jungberg. And and after the game, you know, he he made some pretty um, some pretty kind of outspoken comments saying, you know, the club need to make a decision. Uh, he said, I don't have the resources um, that, you know, most clubs have got. And we're in a situation now where we've got a guy who's managing the academy and the assistant manager. And we've got a guy who's a coach and one of the reserve team goalkeeping coaches, which for a club like Arsenal is just really not good enough. Um, and 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 I'm just I'm just wondering, what did you make of, of Freddie Jungberg saying that after the game? Do you think there was anything like political in that or do you think he was just saying look I know that this was pretty shit today but it's not all my fault well yeah um, there's a few things it was a bad result which tends to make managers say things to defend themselves so it was a little bit of a departure or a further step I've used the term leaning into but he kind of leaned into the hey uh, you know, I the I I didn't do it, kid. You know, yeah. wasn't my fault. Um, and it's not like he didn't have a point. So he le- leaned into that aspect of it. Um, uh, I think he's got to be a bit frustrated because no matter how willing he was to step in and do a job here, they this is an extreme case of saying uh, we'll make, we'll give the interim manager a shot, but giving him no shot. Yeah. Um, and maybe 
Freddy didn't really want this job. And maybe behind the scenes that was never really on. But I suspect what they were not good enough to play the kind of uh, counterintelligence game. I think what we said was the truth, which was they were making it up as they were going along. They would have loved a new manager bounce here, but they gave him absolutely no chance to have a new manager bounce. Mm. Um, not because the supporters weren't up for it. I mean, there was a romanticism about Jungberg that is going to be potentially about Arteta too. At least the same kind of area of the, uh, of the emotional spectrum. Uh, one of our own, given a shot at it. Um, and unlike Solskjaer, um, he's got none of the tools to address it. No time, no nothing. And um, he's got to be pretty frayed at this stage. So he comes off a loss uh, where, you know, we're basically humiliated, um, frustrated by players, by the pl- players that are available to him will be another frustration because like there are players he'd like to be playing who are injured and out um, and in parallel he knows they're talking to managers and that's going on um, and it, it can't help but grate him that he's neither one thing or the other or you're the kind of guy who doesn't give a shit well you wouldn't be none of these guys are in this position because they don't give a shit they all have egos whether he wanted the truly wanted the job at this point or not and so um i think you'll see various motivations at that stage in that in- interview but uh, i i also think he's probably now reached the point where that's an opp it's another person's problem um in that he's he's basically beginning to kind of uh, uh, brush his hands at the idea that it, this is actually his problem, um, and or or that the flaws and faults are his. And part of that press conference, you can't help but think he kind of knew stuff was kicking into gear in terms of a new manager. I mean, he's saying things like, you know, they really ne- need to make a decision on who the new manager is. But it did, and he says whatever that decision may be. But it did not have the tone of whether it's me yeah. or somebody else. It was very much whether it's somebody else or me. Yeah. But, but that's just because that was the official line. So, uh, again, it's kind of a one-off situation where, you know, what's it say for the longer term? In a week's time, I suspect all these conversations will be moot, basically. Yeah. Except, except how badly we've. We've, We've I mean, that they could, yeah, I mean, they must have been the last people in the world to realize the Emery thing was coming to an end, probably because probably they were holding the steering wheel and they thought that had something to do with it, but they weren't really holding the steering wheel. Arsenal supporters have realized uh, with the last two managers that actually uh, when it gets bad enough, when it's clear enough, when you have 90-something percent of supporters knowing what the answer is, supporters hold the steering wheel and the club has been woefully slow to react to it um but they had all the time in the world to have an interim plan and start a long-term plan and and it just has the feeling that uh freddie's signaling his frustrations yeah and and clive i I think well so i i think what we're kind of seeing is some of that back channel briefing that kind of said arsenal have faith in emery um arsenal aren't planning to do anything else etc etc that, that that was probably true by the looks of it because of the the 
lack of contingency and and I guess speaking of back channel briefing literally while we've been on air um the Mr Ornstein has spoken um I none of this really a surprise I guess but David um just tweeted a few minutes ago Mikel Arteta has informed Manchester City of Arsenal talks Manchester City yet to hear from Arsenal and would want big compensation AFC met with Arteta and Patrick Vieira last week um none of which is really a massive surprise this is all stuff that we've been hearing and and kind of there have been photographs of uh Vinay and Husfami outside Arteta's house in Manchester and by the way what an amazing power move from Arteta to make them come back to Manchester with him to talk to him when he was literally in the stadium um, on Sunday. But I I guess it really looks like Mikel Arteta, there's a good chance Mikel Arteta is going to be Arsenal's next manager. Um, it certainly looks like he's moved into pole position and there's just some negotiation to happen. So just broadly, what's your reaction, first of all, to the idea of Mikel Arteta as Arsenal manager? Um, and are you surprised by this move? I'm sort of not surprised because we've all sort of heard whispers. So that takes a surprise out. I think it's one of two options, wasn't it? Go for somebody younger, maybe more aligned to the players' you know, ages, a modern developing coach, and a high-risk appointment, but... Maybe something that's going to underpin a longer-term project. Or do we go for another more experienced manager and try to maybe take a shortcut route to back to the promised land? And, and maybe somebody that will put high demands on the board that none of us really trust to make sure they get well-supported and that will end up seeing better quality people out on the grass, which we all want. So they seem to have chosen the, the former go for somebody which is a high-risk, young, up-and-coming coach. And I think even in, in the article that, all, that David's wrote, he sort of said the last time Arteta came, got closed, they said it was there were rumours of him not having a backroom team. But that's deemed to be inaccurate. So it's interesting to know why Arsenal did turn away from it at the last moment. My feeling was maybe it was, uh, I'm, I, you know what, maybe it was just we knew it was going to be messy and why kill a young man's career? But is it more messy today than it was back in you know, 18 months ago? Mm. It probably is. But what is clear today is absolutely how rubbish we are. That is absolutely transparent, which means there can be no blame on Mikel Arteta for X amount of months. There can be no blame because everyone can see we have problems at this club top to bottom. So, and people will, will vary on their opinions like we always will do for the rest of our lives around the quality of the players. I have my views on the quality of the players and I have my views on where the fault lies. Um, and it's not all on the last coach. It's not, it's, it's a lot of it, in my opinion, is around the quality of players and the recruitment that we've undertaken within the club. And I think the coaches, I think... Wenger found it a challenge, although I think he was massively part of it by not getting rid of the right people and holding on to people too long. I think Emery found it a challenge that he couldn't fix. And we've all seen Freddie almost like a a coach trying to fix problems and with this group and him struggling as well because there's just too much to do. So whoever comes in, 
I mean, I'm 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 glad for those who have been Arteta fans who really wanted him the first time round. I'm really pleased for them. My view is very very similar. I'm glad it's someone that many people like. I hopefully can unify. But what I really want, whoever it is, I just want them to be properly supported by the club, because whoever it is, there is no magic wand. It needs to be a team effort from the ownership to the, the executive to the recruitment staff, feeding to the manager and his coaching staff. And then hopefully that that brings a different style of player, a different style of athlete, a different style of footballer onto the pitch that we, we can all recognise. So that's what I want to see more than anything. Because if that doesn't happen, we'll look as disconnected as we did on Sunday against Man City with three separate departments playing their own game and lots of green grass for us to look at on the screen. Paul, um, my kind of view on this is I feel like Arteta and Arsenal is is a mutual mutual itch that both parties kind of want to scratch. Um, And and that this is kind of... I always felt that if Arteta was open to... So I've got no evidence for this at all, right? But I thought last time when we kind of decided at the last minute not to do it, I always had the impression... Um, that Arsenal were thinking maybe in a couple of years though maybe we'll come back to you one day because we we've seen firsthand yep. who you are we kind of we think we think that you've got something and you know if you'd be open to it maybe we'll come back in a couple of years I, I wasn't convinced whether Arteta would do that or whether another job would come up but I, I do feel like Arteta would really like to do this and I think it's interesting how this is the only job he's regularly linked with like I think he's been like tangentially linked with Everton but I'm not sure there's anything really ever been in that but but Paul I I guess I wanted to ask you with with Arsenal in their current state how much of um, a risk is this for Mikel Arteta's reputation, which at the moment, <laughs> considering he's never managed a game, his reputation is is really, really immense. And I'm thinking like Gary Neville, Valencia, you know, because there's not many young managers you can name who completely fuck up their first big job and then live to tell the tale. Usually that's them done. So how much of a risk is this for Mikel Arteta? Or do you think that maybe this is perfect for him because what he's inheriting is a pile of rubble and he's thinking, do you know what? I can't really do much worse and I can really shape this in my own image. This is a project job and this is this is what I want. Which which kind of side do you fall down on there? Um, I think he'll survive us uh, one way or another. Uh, because he will always have the the get out of jail card that yeah but you got to understand I was managing Arsenal uh, at which point everybody goes yeah yeah that's true we keep forgetting you were managing Arsenal you know he's had um, we've all seen the same slow motion car crash um, whether you're close to the cl- club or distant you've seen uh, this inevitable inevitable swirl down. Um, where it just seems like it's it's sucking everything into this void. So, um, yeah, there, there's a low bar here. Uh, I think on the other side of it, the risk is, and maybe you're a better, slightly better judge of this, uh, or substantially better, depending on how good your psychological skills are. 
how much, despite all the best will in the war, world, and I agree with everything Clive said in terms of support from the supporters and support from the club, um, the reality is just the reality. And, and the frustration and the, the reserves of support have been, and trust with the club have been drained. And even if people aren't frustrated with Arteta, I think we saw it at halftime, there was, it wasn't terrible, but there was some level of uh, disgruntled booing at halftime, which I didn't like, but I kind of understand, but I don't think it's particularly helpful, but I don't think it was particularly aimed at, my guess would be it's not aimed at the players specifically or the manager, it's just the state of things. Well, that doesn't, kind of doesn't matter to Freddie and the younger players or the players. What it is, it's just a thunk that's there and with all the best will in the world and the support from the supporters and the club going into this, in a few months' time, if it's more of the same or slightly worse and it's not be, it's not Arteta's fault, you know, when you're stuck in a, a, uh, in a quagmire, you're stuck in a quagmire and he, you know, can he get to the summer? Emery had a lot of goodwill over the summer, which kind of amazing when you consider how bad things went and how bad they were about to go again. Um, we were we uh, we were relatively quite good at getting our shit together as supporters and getting optimistic again. And yes, buying a few players always helps. Um, so can Arteta get to the summer in reasonable shape from where we're at at the moment? You know, he's coming in at a terrible time, uh, both in terms of where the, the state of the squad's at, um, maybe the factions in the club. I mean, we've just benched two, three senior players, uh, which may have repercussions for the next manager coming in. Uh, we got the Christmas period coming through. We got the, the winter slog. Um, um, there'll be frustration from the fact that we won't sign anybody of meaningful import over January. And by February, frustrations will be frustrations. So, Kind of interested um, when I eventually shut up to uh, get your take on on how you you see the supporter side of it lining up. But I think he's got his work cut out for him. The the thing that gives me hope and solace uh, with Arteta is I got to be convinced he's literally spent the last uh, two one one and a half years and the time before that in some part thinking about the Arsenal problem. Because uh, I, I remember hearing something from a psychologist uh, recently that uh, if you're still remembering kind of the, your pains from the past and it's 18 months or so uh, longer, so you you bring up these awkward incidents from three, four, 10, 15 years, your time in school, it means you haven't kind of processed the shit and you haven't learned the lessons. I suspect he did a lot of his first couple of years at City thinking about what he'd just been through at Arsenal. Then he comes up for the job. So that's all he was thinking about during that time. You know, what has he learned that he could apply at Arsenal? And then he lost the job and spent the next year and a bit thinking, hmm, so if I do get another shot at this. So he's having all these conversations with Pep about City and how they're lining up and tactics and, hey, boss, what would you do if this and that and the other? But he's not really asking about City. He's asking about Arsenal. You know, what do you do when you have two centre backs who do this? And we, you know, I suspect 50% uh, of his compute power has been 
input to now what have I learned here that I could apply there so I'm just I'm intrigued to see he'll be the most prepared manager out there to come in and address the problems will he have the resources to do it I don't know I'll come back on your um, your kind of question of how I, yeah. I think the fans will feel about it but um, Clive do you want to come back on and come back in on that first yeah just thinking the process processing while Paul's talking I'm just trying to think what this appointment would mean versus somebody else an Allegri or Pochettino or someone like that if you do get an experienced manager coming they come in with their reputation and they come in with what they've done before and a level of expectation immediately and a level of salary a, a massive salary for themselves and their coaching staff and their their entourage etc and i think we'd immediately expect magic right so and we all know sort of uh, Allegri's style previously so if we don't see that Juventus all conquering Champions League double final team we'll, we'll be wondering we've, we've seen what Pochettino's done to build his, to build a club really we've seen that before in Vegas maybe that wouldn't be something new for us but with Arteta potentially you know this gives us a chance to go towards what I've always wanted the, the project blow it up right this gives us a chance to do that and it gives us a, it gives us a chance to go almost anywhere. Do you see what I mean? Because the, the, it really is a clean sheet for him. He can literally say because he can say, "I want to do this. I want to play this way. I want to bring in these players to play this style, and really recreate Arsenal in an image of himself." But none of us know what that image really is. And if it is an image based on what he has learned at Man City. That is not a bad image, the way they play tactically. Forget the players that they have. Tactically, the way they're set up in a 4-3-3 is the modern game. And if he's going to bring that to Arsenal, that modern thinking, that modern structure, how he sees the game, how he wants to impose our game on the opposition, focuses on our talent, our players, much more becoming of a big club, I'm all for that. I'm prepared to go even further backwards to come back rather than pretend we have the right quality, the right culture, because we don't. We don't have the right quality. We don't have the right culture. The players' actions are telling us that. We need someone to come in and rip that out because what we're seeing at the moment is some of the worst stuff we have ever seen. You know, this is the truth. Let's not let's not mess about now. This is bad. This is really, really bad. And let's not, you know, we can all debate how we got here. But this actually, rather than he's made the job so big, he can literally rip it up. In fact, I want him to. And he will he will have that time and no one can say we just need a holding midfielder anymore. Because it's not—it's more than that, isn't it? It's way more than that. We—that's where we used to be. Oh, if only we had a holding midfielder. Only if we'd have bought a centre half, we could have got there. Well, that moment was last January when we went to Dennis Suarez and we didn't do our job properly as a club. If we'd have did what we should have done in that January window, we'd have got to Champions League and maybe Arteta wouldn't have this job because we've gone to a different direction. But I'm actually—I'm not too disappointed because I've not been comfortable with the DNA in this club for a long time. And I want it to change. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because Unai Emery turns up the first day in the job and it's right, you've got Aubameyang, you've got Lacazette, you've got Ozil, you've got Ramsey, you haven't really got any wingers, you've got Mkhitaryan, um, sort that lot out and, and try and try, try and integrate all of those players who really don't fit together and who are all on massive wages. And, and when you get to January, Tim, yeah. you can only have a lone player. And yeah. Deal with that one, son. Deal with yeah, that. And get and, into your Champions League. And then one of the one of your players is going to go on a Bosman. The other one is absolutely unshiftable because we put them on an enormous wage. And I think you're right in that we had an expectation of how an Emery team will play because we can see he pretty much has always played four two three one, and that's what he plays on the first day of the season. And we're, like we're away, like we're like, yep, we knew he was going to do that. Um, let's see how he tries to fit everything in. And I, I think you're right in that Arteta has total carte blanche he doesn't have to worry about a lot of those problems Ramsey's gone Ozil will only have a year left on his contract as of the summer um, Aubameyang unfortunately is probably going to go Lacazette might go you know he he doesn't quite have the square pegs round holes problem he just has a load of shapes um, and and to your kind of question, Paul, in terms of how how will the supporters take this, it's it's difficult to get a read on it because Arteta, I, he wasn't divisive as a player. That's not the right word, but but Arteta was like um, Arteta was like I don't know Kid A by Radiohead, right? It it was like some people got it and some people didn't, and. Um, and it was more of a Pablo honey for me. Well, yeah, it it it's just like one of those kind of. Some people really saw the point and valued Arteta as a player. Others really didn't. Others were just like he's got nice hair and he passes the ball sideways. And other and people. And he's very associated with the Wenger era, no matter yeah. what you take on him, good or bad. Yeah, yeah. I also happen to think he was part of the last like properly structured Arsenal team had. A, a mm-hmm. team that Arsenal had, uh, particularly thinking that 13-14 season where it's him, Ramsey and Ozil and you got Mertesacker and Koscielny behind but obviously he was like a member of of that team um, rather yeah. than like um, a coach or anything like that but so I, you know he's not like a club legend, it's not like appointing Vieira and everyone singing the Vieira song and all of that what I think he'd have first of all, I think this season's kind of a write-off um, unfortunately and what he'd have I think is the rest of the season in what I'd kind of call the curiosity space where everyone would be going right we've been talking about this for ages and no one's really got any idea about what Arteta's like as a manager let's just sit and watch what what kind of happens and uh, I, yeah. I think to Clive's point I think it's, if we hired like Ancelotti or Allegri people have opinions about those guys already people know about those those guys they've watched their teams play they've watched more than one of their teams play um, people know Allegri's Milan Allegri's Juventus people know Ancelotti's Milan Ancelotti's Chelsea Ancelotti's Real Madrid but like people know those teams they know how they play people already know what Ancelotti or, or at least they think they do what Ancelotti's going to do before he even walks in the door and you don't have that with Arteta and I think that do would you, buy him a bit of space but only a are bit are you sure are you sure that people don't have a perception that what they're getting is pep. mini pep yeah yeah it could be i i think 
most people would accept for at least a little while that might take a little while to come to fruition sure. and um if if that was what kind of started to happen or Arsenal were starting to try to do that but they couldn't quite do it properly and they needed to turn some players over to get it done like if that was the clear direction of travel I think people would be for it um, but you're right. Like we don't know. We're 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 wish casting that onto him. He he, you know, he worked. He was he 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 was like um, under David Moyes for like nearly a decade. That that could be where he draws all of his managerial inspiration from. For all we know, I I mean, I think it is quite likely that he'll be heavily influenced by Pep uh, for a number of reasons. But um, I I think I think people would be quite fascinated in general, but I'm not going to kid myself that that would last for long. What do you reckon, Clive? I, I've heard him talk about the game. I must admit, today I did a little bit of research on him. <laughs> some old videos of him talking to players. I also did some research on a potential uh, assistant in Xavi Alonso. Mm. Right? So that's, and again, looking at his background, there's a, there's a, there's a YouTube channel called The Coach's Voice. You can all have a look and see various coaches talking about different coaches' masterclass. And Chavilonto talked about his time at Bayern, Real Madrid and Liverpool and how he played mostly a lot of times in a 4-2-3-1, funny enough. I'm not saying that's going to be something that we would do, but I must admit, listening to both of them talk, they are proper coaches that really know the game, what they were doing, what roles they're asked to play. If you can... You know, if you can tell what someone's like just from listening to them talking, how they hold a conversation, how they hold a room, then potentially there's a couple of very smart people coming our way. So but that's great. A lot of football people are very smart. I'm a big believer in messaging, the quality of message, the quality of, of caliber of individual and how you hold millionaires to account. That's not an easy thing to do. And we've seen that breakdown in the last two, three months. And, you know, if it's those two guys, which looks likely, then we're getting some very smart, well-respected coaches that know the football. Again, I come back to, it's not about individuals. The way Arsenal treat managers and coaches, I don't think that great. I don't think it's that classy. And potentially reading David's article, I'm not sure we even approached Mikel Arteta in a classy way. We need to get back to our values really quickly about how we operate, what we are, um, because we're not doing it very well. We're not treating people well. We're not treating our own people very well. We're not even approaching majors in the right way. So we need to fix that. We really do, because many, many people in our fan base support Arsenal by, for many reasons, but one of the main ones is how we operate. We've always operated pretty well as a club. We can't lose that value because, you know, it's fundamental to who we are. So hopefully they'll sort that out. But, hey, I'm interested. I'm really interested in something new. It's high risk. But what we got to lose, actually, at the moment? Seriously, what we got to lose? Yeah, I, I, I kind of tend to agree. I, I think, really, when you look at the list of actual candidates, they're, they're fairly uninspiring. Um, there, there's no one I'm, like, hugely, hugely behind. And I, I think... Look, I think all of Arsenal's best appointments have been risks, have been like quite big risks, um, and usually quite left field appointments. And I do kind of think Arsenal are in that space where, um, if you want the next big thing, 
either as a player or as in management, you've got to roll the dice. It's that simple because if if people know for sure who the next big thing is, like Nagelsmann, we can't get Nagelsmann now. He, you know, he's I think he's younger than me. He's out of our reach now already and he's like 34 years old and that that's how young like coaches are becoming now and if we basically if Arteta takes a job that isn't Arsenal and does it brilliantly he is no longer in our reach effectively yeah. so I, I do think obviously we've got like no real evidence that Arteta is the next big thing in management but um, I, I think Arsenal are in I think in a weird way, for the, all the reasons we just talked about, Arsenal are in a better position. Well, we're in a worse position, um, but like it's a better position to kind of make this kind of a call now, particularly when we're halfway through a season that's that's basically, bar the Europa League knockouts, um, a bit of a write-off, and actually that could be really useful um, to swing the axe and do what needs to be done. So I I think we're in quite a good position to do it. Um, yeah, actually, Tim, Tim, your point about him—I'm not sure if you made it or Ball made it—about him coming back in a couple of years, that 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 sort of really rung home with me, and I, and I think it's it it sort of makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? If it, if that was the case, mm. maybe he didn't fail so badly, maybe he did really well in the last interview, but they just thought it was too soon for him, a little bit more time, and off he went with another four trophies, wherever it was. And, and and now the situation's presented itself, and you know we're giving Arsenal a lot of credit that this could have been always part of the plan that he will be the next one anyway. Yeah. But I I do think it's better for him now because things are so bad. If he'd have come in then, we'd have just expected to be a mixture of Pep and Arsene Wenger. Yeah. And could he actually meet that, those expectations? I don't think anybody can. You know. So so now he comes in into a rescue situation. You know, he's literally got the fibrillator out to go and restart this club, right? So, and he can only succeed from this low base, in my opinion. So, all we can do is stand back and wait and watch, right? And um, and support. That's all we can do, mate. <laughs> yep, very much so. And Paul, unless you've got anything to add, I think that's probably quite a nice point to finish the pod on. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think that covers it. Um, I. Personally, very excited about the Arteta thing. I think it's a romantic notion, and mentally he's prepared for it. And uh, you know, he knows he knows the club he's joining, not just the football players, the squad, but he knows the board. He knows how our ownership doesn't work. Um, so if he takes the job, I don't know. Uh, he, you know, I, I, I sense Clive likes the Chabby Alonso thing from a couple of uh, more from what he hasn't said when we've had back channel chats about Alonso than what he has. But Mikel Arteta, if you just take the two guys and ignore which one's the better coach, because we don't know on it on either side, Mikel Arteta has a huge advantage over him or almost any other manager in terms of understanding what what kind of poop he's getting himself into and hopefully having uh, prepared himself mentally for 18 months uh, for what he would do to pick through the bones of what we got at the moment. So uh, I personally really enjoy the process of seeing how it goes. Yeah, same here. I, I feel a little bit energised by it. I'm looking forward to being an AKB again 
and um, <laughs> gre- greatly look forward Sweet. to Mikel Arteta's managerial debut at Goodison Park um, against his ex-teammate Duncan Ferguson. I think he played with Duncan Ferguson. Maybe he didn't actually, but you know, for in, in terms of hashtag narrative, that's an absolute blockbuster. Gentlemen, yeah. I think um, we've kind of discussed this for long enough, so let's wrap it up there. Uh, you can follow Clive on Twitter at ClivePAFC. Thank you, Clive. Thank you very much. Good job, team. And you can follow Paul on Twitter at Poznan in my pants. Thank you, Paul. Woohoo! I enjoyed hearing you say that. <laughs> and we'll speak to you after Mikel Arteta 10, Everton 0.